Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. The Rabble are a remarkable Melbourne theatre company who, since 2006, have been making visually rich, intellectually bold and provocative feminist theatre. Their latest work is called Yes and will be previewing at Arts House at North Melbourne Town Hall from the 30th and the 31st of March, with the season then running from the 1st to the 10th of April. I'm joined on the line by Emma Valente and Kate Davis, who are the uh, the co-founders and co-directors of Yes, and indeed the co-founders of The Rabble. Emma and Kate, thanks so much for joining us at Triple R this morning. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Emma, let's start with you. In terms of this new work, Yes, we live in an information-saturated age where, weirdly and strangely, the idea of alternative facts, a.k.a. untruths and lies, have permeated our society it's hard to say yes to everything uh, and I want to say no to a lot of things but what did you want to explore in this work yes and picking up on some of those ideas around truth and information and bombardment Um, I think that we just started investigating the idea of saying yes which is often sort of um posited in a very positive way um, and just uh, started asking questions about what are we saying yes to um, that we don't even know we're saying yes to? What are the um, systems of information, of knowledge, of power that um, we're implicitly saying yes to every day, all the time? Um, And started to think about um, different structures that um, are are knowledge and power bases like the media, like the medical system, um, like, uh, you know, who gets to tell the history, um, like journalism and starting to um, unpick and ask the question, how do we, um, how do we build these systems and uh, how do we interact with them? So the show is really trying to, um, build a system of knowledge kind of in front of your eyes and and show you um, some of the ways in which it's done and, and some of the ways in which we're uh, coerced into thinking that something is implicitly true. Um, and, of course, there's a dangerous line there with um, a kind of uh, the idea of fake news at the moment as well. So we're, like, questioning what is true uh, but also there's this um, opposite kind of questioning, um, which is inventing truth. Um, and they're, they're kind of dark forces that uh, implode on each other in some ways. Now, one of those dark forces is the patriarchy. Uh, and, Kate, I wonder if you can pick up on the something that I have certainly spoken with female friends about in the past and other women have spoken about, the pressure to say yes upon women, the pressure to be nice, to, to not reject a, a, an unwanted proposal, all of those kind of ideas. The Rabble are a kind of staunchly feminist theatre company, so I uh, am assuming that there is a, a strong feminist 
undercurrent running, or not even an undercurrent, but perhaps an overcurrent running through yes as well. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I guess I want to say too that in our methodology and how we actually make the work, it's a it comes from a feminist place of making as well in terms of how we actually make the work together. Um, and so we have kind of a feminist process as well as uh, these kind of fe- uh, the feminism kind of running through the work um, that we're creating for Yes. Um, there are definitely moments in the piece that touch on that very thing. And I, I don't particularly want to say too much about the show as yet, uh, but um, there's definitely that is a part of uh, the investigation for us and what it means to say yes um, yeah. And there's a kind of like, um, we really wanted to look at the, um, the invisible structures. So what are the, um, ways in which we're being coerced into saying yes, that are almost completely invisible? Um, what, how are we, um, people putting pressure on people to say yes, um, which to an outside eye might be, um, completely innocuous? Um, so the show's really trying to like zoom in on those kinds of moments that um, I think uh, a lot of people, particularly women, would be familiar with. Mm. To pick up on something that Kate just said, that notion of um, uh, the fact that it's come from a feminist place of making theatre, a feminist process, can you unpick that a little bit for us? Talk to us about that process, uh, perhaps uh, uh, both kind of you, Kate, and also Emma, to talk about how that process differs from uh, a more traditional, perhaps even more patriarchal kind of theatre-making process in which there is one director, often a man, and there you are working from a set script and these are the rules and this is the process you follow. How does yours differ from that rehearsal room? Um, I guess there isn't really any hierarchy in the room for a start. It's a very open room um, and it's, it, it is a process where we are all collaborating. So I'm talking about performers and creatives and production team. Um, and it really is about open communication and having like we start every day, um, which is a part of our process with a check-in, which we feel is really important to have a, everyone has a moment to express how they're feeling either about the work or what, what you know, where they are with the work or how they are personally in the world. These kinds of little processes that we've developed over time it feels like this more inclusive environment and that we're all kind of on the same platform together. Um, And it means that there's this kind of connection and intimacy when we start working on the floor that everyone feels heard, everyone feels like that they are a part of something uh, rather than there being kind of these bosses of the room that know everything. We absolutely outrightly say we we often don't know what this work is going to be we don't know what the answers are it's all about the questions it's all about discovery um and that's just I guess very like laid out and open and honest with everyone we work with if that makes any sense I don't know if you want to add anything to that Em. I guess um you know when we started in 2006 um you know Kate and I were in um rooms as freelance artists which you know often had an authorial voice or an authority um and um part of making this company was a reaction to to those kinds of 
rooms and, and wanting um, a, a space where we could um, really explore um, artistically with, without there being uh, an authority in the room mm. who knew everything. Thinking about yes as a work then, if, to pick up on uh, that phrase, uh, we don't know what the work will be. Um, that, the, 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 the process of, which is something that fascinates me in the making of art, that you are setting out to explore themes and ideas. You have perhaps an end goal in sight, but you don't know what the goal is, what it will look like. The journey to get there is as much uh, the process as the, the end result that you make. Where did you start? What was the kind of what were some of the initial conversations the two of you had and with some of the collaborators that you were kind of bouncing off ideas and exploring with when you began investigating and exploring what has become yes um we really started with a very technical experiment which is what if um every second line was a question and what if uh, the alternate second line was was an affirmative answer and we spent a long time um, just working within that parameter with no other parameters. And what are the kinds of questions that were interesting and what does it mean for an audience if they know that every single answer is going to be affirmative in some way? And then um, themes started to emerge. The, the, one of the very first developments we, we did on this work was in uh, March 2020. Um, and uh, one of the performers... Um, put the other performer in this like isolated little box, um, you know, just drew a tape line on the ground and, and stuck them in a box. Um, and it was like, okay, what, what happens if, if, you know, the, the performer, you know, one of the people is confined and how do the power dynamics change? And then suddenly the meaning of that box changed um, overnight um, when uh, COVID hit. And we were all sent to our little boxes and um, we, you know, had to start wondering what was true and what wasn't true from the confines of our home and without the normal information systems that we would have um, with hanging out with our family and friends um, and what that can do to your outlook on life. So suddenly this um, box, which we we invented just before um, the idea of ISO <laughs> really existed um, and then suddenly the whole meaning of the piece started to morph and change and if you think about um, you know what it's meant to exist in the world and, and um, interact with current events in from 2020 through to now um, that's really um, been part of it uh, is is going um, we feel like we're, we're drowning in information we feel like we're drowning in um, like empathy <laughs> Uh, and um, how do we survive in that kind of environment? Um, and, you know, what happens when the whole world has been through a collective trauma? Mm. Um, how do we come back from that? Uh, so the piece's meaning is, is, is really evolved from this very technical experiment to um, something that is trying to uh, understand what we've all been through in the last few years. Kate, have you been surprised by how it's evolved and how it's grown and changed and shifted over time? Yeah, I think, well, it's interesting because this is the seventh attempt at the work. So we've been, you know, cancelled, you know, and postponed and developments over the last few years. So it's been stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. But what I've been really intrigued by is 
kind of on back of what Emma just said is that actually some of the things that meant some something right back in March 2020, actually how the meaning has changed over these last two years as well, like how some things we think like when we're watching the work is actually kind of reflecting some particular event in the world but then now what does that mean a year later and things are changing so rapidly that actually the meaning is evolving so fast which has been really fascinating watching the work grow over such a long period which is kind of normal for us but in terms of what is happening in the world and how it's reflecting it it's quite organic which is which is great and what we do but it's it's been fascinating with this work in particular um, and especially with information and what is true and, and with this kind of invisible virus as well. Like, you know, like it's just so much of it is in the work. It's, um, yeah, it's been really interesting process. One of the things that intrigues me always about the Ravel's work is that the two of you do so much of the creation of work. You're not just the co-creators and co-directors, but Kate, you're the set and costume designer and Emma, you're the lighting and sound designer um, and kind of the composition as well. And something I always associate with the Rabble's work is this strong kind of aesthetic, uh, kind of striking, rich visual kind of work uh, that is matched by the, the fiercely intellectual approach to the theatre that you make as well. Without giving too much away, what will, apart from the fact that audiences will see a series of questions being asked, which are always being answered by yes, 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 what else will audiences see? What's the kind of aesthetic that they might experience with yes? Oh, it's so hard not <laughs> to give things away. I'm trying to work out how to say it. Um, I, I would say it's a very strong aesthetic um, and... Uh, that the, it's a very, like, it's it's two performers in space and there's a lot more text than that would normally be in a rabble show, but um, there's um, also the very striking kind of um, visuals, bold colours. And what we're doing um, thematically is, um, I like to reference this um, Rebecca Solnit quote, which is building um, these systems of knowledge and power as like building invisible cathedrals. Um, so I think we find ourselves initially in this like kind of grand um, invisible cathedral and then slowly it starts to manifest itself mm. um, and uh, what starts as something invisible becomes slowly becomes visible. And kind of empties out as well at the same yeah. time as mounting up, it empties out. Yeah. So there's um, definitely a big visual journey that we go on mm. as well. <laughs> the Rabbles, yes, uh, is being presented at Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall, 521 Queensbury Street on the corner of Errol. Uh, from the 30th and the 31st of March, which are the previews, the season from the 1st to the 10th of April, 7.30pm Tuesdays to Saturdays and 5pm Sundays. There's an Auslan-interpreted performance on Thursday the 7th of April at 7.30pm and an audio-described performance on Friday the 8th of April at 7.30pm and it runs for approximately 90 minutes. 
You can book by going to www.artshouse.com.au or by picking up your telephonic device right now and calling 9322-3720. That's 9322-3720 or artshouse.com.au to book to see the rabble. Tickets are just 20 ducks. Uh, 20 bucks plus a booking fee um, or $10 black ticks for First Nations peoples plus booking fee as well. I've been chatting with Emma Valente and Kate Davis from The Rabble about Yes. Thank you both so much for joining us on the program. And I was already intrigued by the show and now I'm further intrigued and looking forward <laughs> to seeing it. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Take care. Bye. Triple R. My next guest joins me excitingly in the studio. I'm pretty sure this is the very first in-studio interview with a guest that I have done in two years. Because of the pandemic, everything has been Zoom or telephone. So I'm joined in the studio by Sean Lynch, an artist from County Limerick in Ireland, uh, who has created a work called Distant Things Appear Suddenly Near. It's a temporary public artwork at University Square in Carlton. Sean, welcome to Triple R and in, indeed Melbourne. Uh, thanks so much, Richard. Great, great, so excited to be in the studio with you. Yeah. Now, in terms of the work that you've created, before we pick apart its different elements and references, in terms of making public artwork, what's more challenging to create? Uh, something that you know will be permanent or at least permanent for 20, 30 years or to create something that is literally a, a temporary work that you know is ephemeral and will be gone within a, a couple of years perhaps? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, I, I guess in some ways cities are also about this idea of memory and what people uh, see that's concretized or physically present in a city and encounter that and then you always have the memory of that it's stuck in your head you know so when you're kind of talking about something that's temporary or a fleeting encounter um all these places and all the lives that we live are about memory and existence and our relationships between each other and the objects around us and the attitudes that shape the world and uh, I guess that's a kind of very broad starting point for the artwork that um, well, I've been working on it for four years and it, it opened in December time here. And I'm fortunate enough to have travelled and be here now for a few days to see the work and how people are getting on with it and how it exists on University Square. Yeah. Now, one of the things that intrigues me about the piece is... Uh, the fact that, again, as I said, that it is temporary. And often when we think about public art uh, here in Melbourne, there, there is a lot of public art, a lot of public sculpture, for example, some of which feels permanent, but even something like the Burke and Wills Memorial, for example, has moved around different locations in the city, so it's not quite as permanent as it may seem. Uh, and then a work like this that is designed to be temporary, but which is also... Uh, because of the research that you've done and the, the investigations that you've done into collections held by the City of Melbourne and more, is not just kind of referencing that part of Carlton, but is referencing the history of the city and indeed the history of other public artworks that were once permanent or semi-permanent and have since kind of been put back into storage. That, that's right, Richard, yeah. Um, well, I guess to, to start with, the, the location that the piece is in 
it's on the north part of University Square, so it's on the way into walking into the university grounds themselves. And uh, the park there, that started as where the night sile for Carlton would be dumped, you know. So it was a place where the sewerage of the city was just thrown, you know. So that's the beginning of, of uh, the kind of Western ideology of putting a park there, you know. And then there was, in the 19th century, uh, the, uh, a lot of elm trees were planted there and they were done in the shape of a Union Jack flag. Uh, so if you looked from above, it was a very particular kind of colonial stamp on that area. And in more recent years, of course, there's been more contemporary ideas of how the park should exist and what use it has for everybody who lives here in the city and what kind of symbol it is for public space too. And at the moment, they make the metro station up there. So this opportunity came about between all of these uh, particular things that have happened in the park and the Aboriginal history before that has it been a very important site for uh, tributary rivers to come into to the, to the Yarra. Um, I kind of became interested to see how an artwork would... Um, uh, have a kind of fleeting existence with this and be able to use some of these histories and situations um, to make a, a little bit of a counterpoint, I suppose, to those big, huge skyscrapers. I'm an Irishman, so I know nothing about skyscrapers. So these big, huge skyscrapers that seem to be moving more north all the time and that sense of gentrification moving out of the centre of the city here into other areas. So um, it's about, in one way, the leftovers of that very violent capitalist uh, progress in the city and to look at them again and realise that the, um, our lives in many ways, our lives are very fragmentary. You know, we live by having lots of different kinds of experiences and that all leads up to some sort of holistic understanding of the world. And so the artwork somehow reflects that, I think. Yeah, the fact yeah. that, as you say, it... Uh, it is in some ways comprised of fragments. There are there is a, a a a scale reproduction of the Corkman Hotel, the pub that was infamously knocked down by cowboy developers to great shock and anger. Uh, you reference the elm trees that used to grow in the square. You've used some of the trunks of those trees uh, in the, the work as well. You've also, as I said, gone through the, the city of Melbourne archives and, and warehouses and storerooms and pulled out um, old streetlights, for example, and incorporated those into the work too. That's right, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, there's a want to scavenging and... Uh, looking around in situations like that and trying to assign value to, to a lot of the objects and scenarios you're talking about there. Yeah, the Corkman, that was on the corner of uh, University Square and, as you say, it's been in the news a lot in the last few years because of a weekend demolition by the, the building developers or these rogue developers. And so there's... Uh, um, a reconstruction of that made out of plywood that's about maybe three quarters of the size of what the original Corkman was. So there's a little bit of um, 
Alice in Wonderland vibe maybe about it that you've got a little too big in the last two years and you can't quite fit into the door of the bar anymore. And then when you, when you walk through that area, then there's a bunch of objects, like you say, those elm trees were found brought back to the park. They're no longer part of a colonial master plan to stamp it. So they're in retirement somehow. And maybe they can have an existence in that sense. And one of the very, I suppose, uh, poignant experiences and encounters for me over uh, the making of the piece was to get to know the great um, Adelaide-based artist Hussein Valamanish, uh, who pa- he passed away in January time, very suddenly. And... Um, I came by Hussein's work in uh, one of the storage depots here in the city and he made a very, very beautiful piece called Fault Line that was installed in the late 1990s uh, at, at Southbank. Um, and the, the piece had, was there about a decade and then it was removed and put into storage. And uh, it consists of some bronze elements and uh, of a boat, a cast of his own body and an architectural surround around it. And the more I was researching this, I thought, um, you know, it'd be very exciting to make pieces of public art that somehow know that uh, there's brothers and sisters there. So a piece of public art has a family and that's other pieces of public art and they can all kind of grow up together in the city somehow. Or There's a heritage and a genealogy and uh, a sense of relationship between these different pieces that they're not simply isolated objects in different parts of um, the urban encounter, the cityscape. And so I got to know Hussein and we worked closely together on having very nice chats as a kinship of artists, I suppose, about how we might reintroduce that piece of his. And there's several elements of it placed back into University Square now for the next year or year and a half. So, um, you know, one of the reasons for making art is to make friends. And so I was very fortunate to get to know Hussein. Yeah. One of the things that intrigues me about the work, Sean, is that it feels, not necessarily consciously and aggressively, but it feels like um, not only a response to the, the endless march of development, but it also feels like a, a response to time itself and to try, as if you're trying to disrupt the linear progression of time by showing us the history of the site, but fractured and fragmented and coalescing and overlapping so that all time is happening simultaneously. Sure. Um, I, I had a very particular experience here. I was here in 2019 for a month uh, going around and I went out to the... Pro- there was protests going, out, going on out near um, Ballarat about a road that was being constructed that was going to steamroll over uh, a lot of birthing trees out there. Uh, so I went out to have a look and talk to a few of the lads in the protest camp. And that was a, a very particular encounter for me to understand, like as an outsider to Australia as well, about uh, space and time and context and... Um, a lot of the frictions that are around in how um, capitalism pervades itself here, you know. Um, And I didn't take anything in terms of a subject matter out of that, but as an experience to know how uh, space is constructed and that there's ways through space 
um, that are not accounted for in terms of the grid of the city or the skyscrapers or the up, down, here, there, left, right, you know, that there's other ways of positioning yourself in terms of understanding time and circumstance. Um, so in, in little ways, these experiences would all add up to to the, the formality of the piece, where you can kind of drift around a lot of those objects you're talking about. There's no one um, direction to come from. Um, you know, you can encounter it from different areas or different locations um, as you get to University Square. And again, the references sometimes are very local. They speak about the square itself and some of the history of it there. Then it's also about Hussein's work, which is about belief systems of the world and artworks that existed in other parts of the city and some of the architectural ornamentation and the history of artisanship as well and the construction of the city. So I'm no expert in all of this sort of stuff, but I'm mad interested in it and I like the idea of stirring a pot and trying to understand how these things can be discussed and encountered in a very public way. And that's one of the reasons for the piece. Speaking of public ways and the attention of the public, perhaps. Uh, in 2015, you represented Ireland, your, your own country, at the Venice Biennale. And I wanted to ask, what kind of pressure does that place on you, on an artist, when they are... It's no longer about you and your practice so much. You are the representative of your nation. What, what was that experience like? Oh, it was great fun. Of course, it's such a privilege because all artists want to have a good public place to present their thoughts you know and you know exhibition making in itself um, it's not the end of kind of making art it's just a way of um, or the end of a process of making art and that you show your wares to people it's about um, just a way of indexing or checking in with people where the, the art you're making at that particular time and place and how it might resonate you know um, so, like, Ireland would have a very interesting history with Venice as well. Um, and, for example, a lot of very beautiful buildings in Ireland that were built in the 19th century um, uh, were based on uh, architects going over to Venice and making drawings of all the beautiful palazzos and everything there. And that um, movement of information um, to Ireland, it, it created a very beautiful situation with stone carvers in the country at the time who were no longer just given a job by an architect to carve whatever the architect said on the front of a building. Uh, instead, they heard in Venice that the stone carvers could carve whatever they wanted onto a building because they were a very important part of how the public should be made up and how life should be and why would they take an order from someone who believes that they would be an authority, you know? So that relationship for me was very interesting at the time because um, this notion that artists could behave in a very public way and do things and not be instructed by someone else to carry out a task, you know? Um, and so I had a, a lot of research at that time into two particular characters called John and James O'Shea, um, who got into a lot of trouble because they could carve whatever they wanted and whatever building at any time, you know? So it's divilment, you know? There's a good thing in the divilment, I think, yeah. It's useful. And, Sean, out of interest, how... Healthy, would you say, the Irish contemporary art scene is at the moment? Certainly, 
music in Ireland is flourishing across a variety of, uh, of styles and genres. I, I pay some attention to the theatre scene over there as well. I'm not that familiar with the contemporary visual art scene in Ireland at the moment. Yeah. Is, is it healthy? There's lots of really, really good young artists uh, who don't care what anybody think and they go and they really make their work and it's a very exciting time for that, you know? And I, I am, of course, it's a Western country, so there's a privilege there in many ways. So um, they're not worried about the hierarchies uh, there. They're not, in my mind, um, thinking about their careers. They just really want to make a difference and I think contribute to to um, the world around them. And there's no real market too much in Ireland for selling art, so people don't have to think about that because it doesn't exist in a very big way. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye out on them. Yeah, they'll be, I'm sure they'll be arriving here in Australia soon and making friends with Australian artists and there'll be nice relationships ahead, you know. I'm, I'm, like, I'm in my 40s, so I'm looking at these guys going, uh, they've, they've got a lot going on and they, they have a real energy there, yeah. 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 To come back finally to the work that you've created, uh, Distant Things Appear Suddenly Near, which, as we said, is the, a temporary public artwork at University Square in Carlton. In term, given its temporary nature... Uh, when, how long will it be on display for? And will you be able to come back to see it again before it is taken down? Yeah, I, I, I might come back, yeah. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be there. Um, some of that has to do with the construction of the metro station that's very close to it. We think a year, year and a half, two years maybe. Um there's a journey ahead for all the different elements that are in place there. So, for example, the corkmen will end up being mulched up and uh, will make a benefit to the landscaping scene around Melbourne. Um, Hussein's work, I don't know what kind of journey it will take, but it's very equipped to go to different places and different contexts and uh, all that antique furniture, uh, I guess, will find different locations for itself in the city again. So in many ways, I kind of think about it like, uh, you know, when you're renting a room in a house and you've got all your housemates there and you're all together for a period of time and then one person moves out somewhere else and someone else goes into another house. So it's a little bit like that. All these elements are housemates for a year or two in the location and some of them will get on better than others and others will fall out a little bit and those frictions are part of life like you know so I always think that's a useful analogy for for bunching up a lot of things that might not initially seem related yeah. Distant Things Appear Suddenly Near is installed at University Square in Carlton uh, please do go and explore and visit the work. I've been chatting with its creator, Sean Lynch. Sean, thanks so much for joining us here at Triple R. Oh, lovely, Richard. Thanks so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. The novelty of having guests in the studio continues. It's so exciting. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by independent filmmakers Perry Cummings and Paul Anthony Nelson, who collectively are Cinema Viscera, and they have their latest film, Apparitions, screening in a short season from this Sunday at Cinema Nova in Carlton. Welcome to you both. 
Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having us, Richard. <laughs> Lovely to have you both in. Let's start with you, Perry. In terms of this, the new film, it's a horror thriller. Why? What's the appeal of genre for you as a filmmaker? Um, I think that I love a heightened story where you throw very real, very flawed characters into extreme circumstances. So our um, characters don't, you know, suddenly develop superhero qualities. Um, if they fall down, it hurts. Um, if they have a meltdown, it's painful. And um, if they have a quirky comeback, it comes from their desperate insecurities. <laughs> and, Paul, in terms of making a horror film, mm -hmm. kind of, it, it's one of the old adages of any kind of storytelling that um, bad comedy quickly goes flat, mm -hmm. bad horror turns into comedy. Yes. How do you approach making a, a film a horror film, a thriller, anything, and maintain a, a genuine atmospheric tension and dramatic tension? Well, two things. One, we do. We always pepper humour throughout our scripts anyway. Um, you know, characters have quirky outlooks on life and, and uh, yeah, we're, we're sort of, uh, like Perry said, uh, when you get ordinary characters and put them in heightened situations, you often have a situation where, you know, characters will react to that heightened situation in a very real way, which, you know, which elicits humour. The other way is by grounding it in character. Um, that's, that's the thing I always find. It's not so much about, you know, getting... The, you know, it's all about the situation and getting the audience to kind of believe the situation. You give them believable characters and then sort of get through, you know, um, let them enter the story through that way. And I think... By grounding it that way and getting uh, creating characters that our audience can get involved with, that lessens that uh, that potential for <laughs> rise uh, risability. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about apparitions as a as a film. What's the the elevator pitch? So it's about a young woman um, haunted by her past who um, travels back um, to the place where a tragedy happens to discover. Um, what truly happened while um, a couple of multi-generational women are um, believing that the murdered may have become a murderer and um, hunting back to either protect her or take her in. When you say haunted by her past, do you mean literally? <laughs> she does have nightmares, although it, it, it is a ghost story, but perhaps not all the ghosts in this one are dead. And yes, and people through her life uh, keep disappearing for some reason as well. Lots of little kind of plot seeds and ideas mm -hmm. to set up and explore there. In terms of Cinema Viscera as a company, you make micro budget films, which there's two things that immediately strike me about that. One is that um, you're creating films which can fill a particular niche in the, the Australian film sector. But also it means that presumably you have more, in some ways, despite the constraints of micro-budget filmmaking, you have more creative freedom than you would have, partly because you don't have to spend several years raising a um, million dollars or five million dollars to make a film, and also because... Uh, as well as not having the stress of the fundraising, you don't have producers breathing over your shoulder saying, actually, no, I don't like that. Can we cast my best friend mm. in the film instead? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly it, it's like everything in film. Everything, whether it's a tiny budget or a mega budget, everything is freeing and constricting in different ways. You know, like if you had a hundred million dollars, you could put anything you imagine on screen, but then you've got to answer to a committee of of people who second guess everything, and the decisions aren't really yours. Um, they're, they're usually coming from a corporate level, and there's a lot of pressure on that regard. Whereas in our level which is the complete other swing, is uh, we, we, do have, um, we do have that creative control. We do have time in the, de- uh, in the kind of development stage, I guess, um, but also it's constrictive in terms of time, you know, like when you're on set, you've only got a very limited time to get what you get and you can't, you know, like sort of... I guess you could schedule reshoots if you wanted your, you know, uh, film to go on for years and years and years and... <laughs> And have people change their hair and all this sort of this stuff that you have to deal with in the real world that you know studio filmmaking doesn't have to do with. They can do the reshoots right after the shoot. Um, so there's all this kind of stuff, but but really, it's just allows us to kind of find our way creatively as well, and kind of find who we are as storytellers. And you know, because neither of us are film school grads. You know, I I did a year at RMIT just to kind of upskill um, a few years ago, but. Outside of that, you know, we're we're pretty much self-taught. We've, um, I'm, you know, we're, we're both movie buffs. It's, uh, and it's a, that sort of thing where we can kind of train and develop and 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 work out our voice without that next level of, as you say, that that producer trying to tamp it and trying to change it. And 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 yeah, I think what comes out is a sensibility that's very much both of us combined and and sort of like a firestorm the nuclear man of filmmakers and ride the energy of kind of running and gunning it you know we did a bit of a guerrilla shoot here at the exhibition buildings and our biggest star Stefan Dennis ran crowd control for us and um, let me let me be... tell you, people listen to Paul Robinson when he tells them to <laughs> do things. They so do. They so do. But you have to be creative on the spot and you have to work like a real team, things that you might miss out on if you're at that bigger kind of more studio level. Does it also hone kind of working in, in this kind of semi-guerrilla kind of uh, way, does it hone the storytelling as well? Because there's no room for excess. There's no time to, to waffle. You have to cut to the chase and focus on the heart of what it is you're telling. I think absolutely. It also means that the um, the heart of what you're telling can um, get missed in the rush as well. So I think that Paul and I, as um, we develop and as our collaboration develops, we you know sit together before every shoot to make certain that we really understand what the emotional heart is because that's the fun of it is to be able to capture that visually and with the actors and with the set, everything leaning towards that kind of emotional heart and the emotional changes of the story. Um, so I think even though we work on, you know, next to nothing budgets, maximum creativity is the thing that we want to throw at it to really kind of tell that story in an effective way. Talk to us about the the creative process of how long does it take, for example, to write a screenplay, multiple drafts, how long are you working on a film like Apparitions even before you start shooting, Paul? Yeah, it can vary. It's, uh, you know, like our first film, Trench, we kind of went in kind of building that for speed. Uh, it was a, f- a film that went from sort of idea to shooting in about, was it eight months or something? It was, I think it was September 2000, August 2015, and we're shooting by April 2016. And we went through about three drafts, you know, two or three, uh, no, three drafts in that time. It was shockingly quick. It was shockingly quick. And then it took shockingly long to get it out into the world. Uh, um, but this one, yeah, this one was an, this one has actually had a germ and an idea I had about 
15 years ago. Um, that was, it, it sort of it was about a sort of a, a final girl character and all this and who had kept ending up in these final girl situations. And that was a very kind of original idea in 2007. And then by the time we I'd sort of gotten to honing it around sort of 2014, 2015, it was like there were suddenly films like The Final Girls and things like that that were like taking that concept away. And it was a bit more out in the ether. So I, we needed to kind of find a new angle on it. But the thing is we really loved the four characters that we created. And so we decided, let's get them and put them into a, a film that's sort of a, an adjacent idea. So we developed that for a, a couple of years. And then we, when, when did we really get down to the, the nuts and bolts of writing it? That was after Trench shot, wasn't it? So it was about, a, yeah, so it was around 2019. Yeah, no, 2018. Yeah, 2017, 2018. So and we went through about five drafts on this one and, and over about a year and a half. And then we were shooting by, yeah, March, between March and May 2019. Once you decide on your first shooting day, that's kind of like your deadline. You have to stop tinkering with the script and get into pre-production properly. Otherwise, I think you could keep working on the script forever. And then you get on set, of course, on a micro-budget film and it's like, oh, we've got to throw this idea out because now we're in the location, this thing doesn't work and how do we do this? And Yeah. So there's a, a degree of improv in the shooting, uh, just going, right, we need to recreate this scene. So how does that work? Very Absolutely. Easy. And the exciting thing is at 3 o'clock in the morning when you realise you need um, a spooky highlight, some of the most creative um, decisions get made as the team comes together to really kind of push the envelope on stuff like that. We had a couple of those moments. Um, I think there's always a ticking clock when you're shooting. It doesn't matter what sort of budget mm-hmm. you're on. But when you're, you know, working from 5.30 in the morning until 8 o'clock at a pub because it's closed, you've really got to go in with a plan mm-hmm. but still leave yourself open enough so that you can take it in surprising direction. And, and that's where collaboration kind of comes in as well and crew members have ideas and cast members have ideas and you get in the space and sometimes you work through something it's like, this feels wrong, how do we sort of make it feel more alive? And, um, and getting crew, cast and crew input on that uh, is really great. We, we are, you know, very collaborative. And, and preparation, you know, rehearsal so that the, mm. um, car- you know, the cast feels really supported and comfortable and like a family in their characters so that they can really embrace those moments. Now, Perry, I know you have a background in theatre as well as filmmaking. How valuable has that experience of directing actors for the stage been in terms of directing actors for screen and in particular supporting the actors as people rather than just automatons who stand there and deliver their lines? I think it's really exciting. I I love it when you can go in for a close-up and you can really see what a great actor is doing. I think that I love directing actors. I love working with actors. I love bringing things out of them that they didn't even know they had. And I think the um, medium of film and how all the visuals can support that is an exciting way to really, you know, show what some fantastic Melbourne actors. We've got a cast of theatre actors and a cast of kind of emerging Melbourne talent that may not otherwise be seen. Um, And I think they all did a beautiful job. I think we both try and support them and just, like... Let them do what they want to do with the roles within the tracks of the story. Mm. Paul, you you write, you produce, you direct. Uh, does it ever get to the point where you just think we maybe should bring some more people in? <laughs> that's why we share it, Rich. <laughs> that's why. That's why it's two of us. Uh, yeah, I doing all this alone for many films would be crushing. I think, but but having pairs to kind of lean on and and 
share our ideas and have and be that bounce board and be that check and balance as well. Like often one of us will come up with the idea with an idea for a scene or a, or, a, or an approach, and the other one will turn around and go, really. <laughs> and so, and then there's the the great negotiation to kind of get to the middle point where the the point of compromise that we we both um, believe in. So that really helps. I I also edit. Um, I figure if it's good enough for the Coens, it's good enough for us. <laughs> we do have the amazing um, Tim Egan as our DOP on this, so he was like the third part of that collaboration wheel. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, Apparitions has already screened as part of Monster Fest, mm-hmm. the, the, the genre film festival, uh, and I believe got a very enthusiastic response. It did. We got a sellout crowd, and um, which was quite something. It was nice for the hometown premiere, and... Uh, yeah, and, and the response was, was hugely positive. Um, so we're hoping to kind of take take some of that headwind into these two screenings um, and, and you know, sort of show more of Melbourne what we've done. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's always lovely, particularly in a horror film, to have people, you know, kind of gasping and laughing and, and uh, you know, jumping in the right places. Is film like theatre in that it doesn't come to life it's not finished until there is an audience watching it? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's a very different experience to sit there and see it as you're editing it or to sit there with the sound designer and watch it and see all the flaws. But to see it with the audience reaction is is so surprising. And realise moments that are dramatic and moments that are funny and moments that are ridiculous that you never quite knew would work or perhaps didn't even know were there. I'm always surprised when an audience laughs at something. Mm. You do you do still see the flaws. <laughs> I can relate to that as well with my, my own writing as well. It's like, ah, oh, that's just been published and now I spot the typo in the headline, yes. which literally happened this week. Oh, sorry. If you want to see Apparitions, the latest film from Cinema, Cinema Viscera, it's screening this Sunday, the 27th of March, at Cinema Nova in Carlton at 3.45pm and again on Tuesday, the 29th of March, at 8.40pm. Now, personally, I think the 8.40pm, more appropriate, you go into this, it's already dark and you come out and it's darker. Uh, that seems the, the more appropriate time to watch a horror film rather than in the middle of the afternoon but I'm just old fashioned what would I know um, and are you doing any special presentations kind of uh, Q&A's uh, as part of the screenings yeah we've got a Q&A for Sunday so it'll be myself Paul um, one of our actors who also works at Cinema Nova Shannon Coolapatch who plays the quirky sidekick Alice and um, our wonderful DOP Tim Egan so, yeah, no Q&A on the Tuesday night one, but uh, I can assure audiences come down to Nova and you'll have some fun. And, and you know, and the film is 82 minutes as well. Uh, as someone who bemoans the length of movies these days, uh, the Hollywood product, uh, yeah, we make them nice and, nice and fast like punk records. Excellent. To book to see Apparitions at Cinema Nova, jump online, www.cinemanova.com.au forward slash films, forward slash apparitions. Uh, If that sounds too complicated, just go to the Cinema Nova website and look for Apparitions and the screening details and you can book to see it for either this Sunday afternoon or this coming Tuesday night. Perry Cummings and Paul Anthony Nelson are collectively Cinema Viscera. Thank you both for joining us in the studio. Thank you so much for having us, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>